Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Eastertide, we are asking our Lord to teach us to pray. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, and in response, he gave them what is both one of the most simple and yet complete prayers. In the Didache, one of the earliest documents of the church from the second century, it simply instructs Christians to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Christians have devoted themselves to this prayer from our Lord ever since he first gave it. We are going to ask him to teach us this spring through prayer. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Lord, we're thankful that, um, that you taught your disciples long ago to pray and and um, that even now you still teach us, uh, you still shape us. You do that through your word and you do that through prayer. And We pray that uh, wherever we're coming to you today from, that you would meet us and teach us and draw us in uh, to this great chorus of your holy, holy, holies. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so this, this Eastertide, uh, we're considering the Lord's prayer together, and we're asking the Lord, as his disciples did here in the Gospel of Luke, uh, to teach us to pray. And as you might imagine, maybe this has actually been some of you. Um, as a pastor, it's not uncommon for somebody to come and say, I don't, I don't really know how to pray or to talk to God. Can you teach me how uh, to pray? And um, what I've always done with that is I've said, start here. Um, some of you know the, the text, the Didache. It's one of the earliest documents we have for the church. It's also, it's uh, other title is called the Teachings of the Twelve because it was the generation right after the Twelve Disciples. Uh, the earliest document that we have really of ch- sort of Christian instruction. And in there, there's just a short section on prayer and it says, uh, when you pray, pray in the morning, or pray three times a day in the morning, noon, and evening, this. And it just quotes the Lord's Prayer. And so, if you're wondering, how do I pray? Just devote yourself to the Lord's Prayer. Last week, we looked at the invocation of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. And today, we're going to consider what's called the first petition, the first request of God. Hallowed be your name. And I want to begin this morning um, with the idea of sort of uh, impersonation and because so many of you are country music fanatics and you love Kenny Chesney so much, I'm going to quote Kenny Chesney in honor of my wife especially. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a music man. I grew up in East Tennessee, but last night I was everything when I got a few drinks in me. I was a doctor, a lawyer, a senator's son. Brad Pitt's brother and a man on the run. Okay. Y'all obviously don't know that song. That's actually what I guessed, but whatever. Impersonation, right? Um, He says, I'm a music man, but you know what? I'm a doctor. I'm a a lawyer. I'm a senator's son. I'm Brad Pitt's brother. I'm a man on the run. Whatever I need to do, I can do it. Uh, It's a fine song, sort of funny. You should obviously learn it because you don't know it. Um, But of course, impersonation actually is not very funny. It's not very fun when it happens in real life. 
right? Let me, let me give you one story. Um, this man, Ferdinand de Mara, he was born in the, uh, the early 1920s in uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts. Um, he dropped out of high school, actually, to, to join in with a bunch of monks at a monastery. And then um, a couple years later, he enlisted in both the army and the navy. Neither sh- didn't show up to either one of them. Um, and he went on in his life to just assume all these different impersonations, all these different aliases. Uh, he taught in college uh, falsely. Uh, he was a prison warden. He was a law student. He was all kinds of different people, all kinds of different jobs. He said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Here's my name. Here's my resume. He just impersonated others. Um, probably most notoriously and most dangerously during the Korean War, uh, Demera, he stole the credentials of a doctor who he knew. He um, joined the Royal Canadian Navy and was the main surgeon on a destroyer during the Korean War. He'd never taken a class to be a doctor. And he was operating on people on that destroyer during the Korean War. Supposedly, so much so that he was taking bullets out from being lodged just next to others' hearts. Um, No doubt. You all know that uh, identity theft has been on the rise. Uh, you know, the idea of stealing somebody else's identity for some sort of use, um, profit. Uh, last year, the Federal Trade Commission said that there were 1.4 million identity theft cases, at least reported. Um, the primary uh, theft is government documents, as you might guess. And um, that tops the list of identity th- theft last year, 395,948 people claimed identity theft with government documents, victims of identity theft. Um, The median loss uh, for a victim of identity theft was about $500. But all of that identity theft together, the loss was $10.2 billion. Um, Impersonation. Identity theft, I mean, it's sort of funny in a song, but it is no joke in real life. Um, In many ways, you could say that this idea of impersonation and identity theft, according to the Bible, is the thing that is wrong with the world. And getting it right is the thing that will most put the world to right. So, we cry out, the very first petition, this is what we say, hallowed be your name. And I want us to look at this petition by just asking some really basic questions. I think the first one is just this. What does that mean? What are we saying when we say hallowed be your name? I mean, hallowed probably reminds you of a certain holiday near the end of October named Halloween. Right? So maybe you're like, hallowed ween be your... What am I even saying? This is just confusing. Um, And actually, in some ways, you should make that connection. Because Halloween is literally just the eve of the hallowed one's day. All saints' day. The ones who've been set apart for God. To be a saint, 
To be a hallowed one is to be set apart for him and for him only. So when you cry out, hallowed be your name, hallowed be you, what you're saying is you alone, you alone are God. There is none like you. You are set apart as entirely different, as entirely distinct, as above all else. There's no God like you. You alone are worthy of worship. You alone are worthy of praise. To you alone, we say our alleluias. You alone are the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the preserver of life. In you alone... I really find what I most desire, what I most need. You are it. You alone. You are holy. Um, Maybe the word in the Bible that's closest to this idea of holy, hallowed, holiness, is the word um, glory. In fact, if you were attentive, maybe you heard some of that, those words in our psalm, sort of almost interchangeable. They're kind of like that sometimes in the Bible which comes from the, the Hebrew word chabad, which means weighty, a heavy, significant. And the great need of the world, broadly, and in our individual lives particularly, the lives of our communities generally, is to know this holiness of God, this glory of God, his weight his significance. He alone is God. Um, in comparison to the weightiness of the God, of God, all the world is, is light. It's to be held on to loosely in comparison. In comparison to the reality of God, everything else is sort of opaque, light. Perhaps that related to the hollowing of one's name. There's an Old Testament story that I imagine most of you are familiar with. Many of you probably are familiar with. The second book in the Bible, Exodus, it begins with saying that the people of Israel had been down in Egypt for 400 years and there was now a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph and the people of Israel found themselves in slavery. Um, And what they were doing is they were crying out to God, God, save us, redeem us, bring us out from this slavery um, Moses then in chapter 3 is working for his father-in-law, Jethro, and he, he comes to this Mount Horeb, which is called the Mountain of the Lord. And there, there's a burning bush that is not consumed. Uh, which is to say, think of this idea of our Father who art in heaven and how that means that God is outside of the reality of this place and the workings of this world. A bush that is, not, is on fire but is not consumed is a total contradiction. Fire always consumes. Light, to have light always means to consume something else. So God is, is there and he speaks to Moses and he tells them, he's heard the cries of his people. In fact, he says this, I've heard their affliction. This is what it says. And I'm coming down to redeem them, to deliver them. And I think pretty understandably, because it's a burning bush, Moses is like, who do I tell them? Do I go back to the slaves in Egypt? Um, keep in mind, who you know, find themselves in the most powerful place 
under the most powerful um, being in this earth, Pharaoh, who have all of these other gods, do I go back to them and say, hey, this burning bush told me he's going to save you? Like, let's just acknowledge that's a very, very understandable question that Moses asks. And what God says is this. He says, I am who I am. I understand that 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 also is sort of like, that might be a weird thing to to tell them also. Um, Because they would have known, just like you do, most gods have names, right? Zeus. Uh, Poseidon. Most gods have places that they come from. Um, But God says, I am who I am. Pope Benedict XVI said this, this is like a name and a non-name at the same time. Which is actually the exact point. Because in some ways what God is saying is I'm defying every category you have. I'm revealing myself to you, but there's no way you will ever have comprehensive um, understanding of me. I am not contained in the categories that you have for anything. I burn a bush and it's not consumed. I'm not a God who has the same kinds of names as you do and comes from similar places, and has similar temperaments, and has similar powers. I exist entirely as other. You can call me by my name. This is what God is saying to to Moses. Yahweh, the Lord, the I am. But don't think for a moment that because you can give me a name, that you can contain me, that you can completely understand me, that I fit your categories of a being or anything like that. can't be confined into created minds and created abilities. And here's the thing. As strange as that answer seems to us, it's actually exactly what they needed. Because according to their own abilities, there's no God that could come and take on Egypt that could really actually save them from their slavery. That couldn't exist. This was, as I said, the most powerful place, the most powerful people, the most powerful gods of their day. But if this Yahweh, if this I am, is outside of all those categories, what's possible with him, is that's not the same thing as what's possible with us. He's no Zeus, no Poseidon. It's the I am, the true God that exists beyond, beyond our comprehension, beyond our senses of what is possible and impossible. Now, this leads, of course, to the idea of the hollowing of the name, the name of God, which is to say there's no counterfeits. There's no impersonators. You can't impersonate this God. You can't kind of take his name and pretend to be him. This isn't some God who can't come through. He says, don't don't make me into your own sort of categories. Don't try to impersonate me or make me up. Hollow my name. 
Don't allow other gods to be who you think I should be. This is what he's saying. Please make, this is what we pray when we say this. Please make your real identity known so that we, so that the whole world will recognize you, will honor you, will bow down to you, will serve you. Show yourself. Okay, that's what we're saying. Second question. Uh, Why is this such an important petition? Why do we need this so much? What's the big deal? You know, I mean, if, you were, if you're uh, Jesus, you have these disciples come up to you like they do in Luke, and they say, hey, John taught his disciples how to pray. Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Maybe what you would think, right, and this is actually what happens in Matthew, is that people were sort of ostentatious, and they wanted other people to look at them and pray, and go, ooh, that was a really insightful prayer there. Um, you know this temptation, right? Because we have that temptation sometimes. Uh, but Jesus says, this is the first thing I want you to say. Hallowed be your name, speaking to God. Why would he say that's the first thing? Here's the thing. The Bible presents the problem with the world like this. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Um, they've been provided um, for everything that they could possibly need and more. And God gives them all this stuff for food to eat. He walks with them. He lives with them. They live in this beautiful place, perfect, no sin. And yet the one thing that God told them, don't do that, is what they say. He probably doesn't know what he's talking about. God speaks and things come into being. I probably know better. You know what? I should just be God. I mean, that's really at the heart of their sin. They're impersonators. Adam and Eve. They're doing the impersonation of God. God, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me be the place, the the person that determines, the being that determines what is good and right or wrong or whatever. Cain's an impersonator, right? He brings judgment on his brother, something that God is only supposed to do, to take and to give life. Um, the people of, of Noah, they, were, uh, they, they wouldn't put God as God, which is to say they didn't want to have him as the Holy One. Um, think about the next story we find in the Bible. Uh, the people that built the Tower of Babel, they decided that we're going to build something up to heaven, which is to say we're going to put our, ourselves in the place of God. The story you get from the beginning of the Bible all the way through is the real problem with the Bible, or the, the real problem with the world, is that God is not the hallowed one. But said we are. Said we are. We decide today that we think we know better than God. We think we should be the ones who decide what is right and what is wrong for us. Uh, We think one of the great virtues is, uh, especially in America, right, complete independence, complete autonomy, of course, the garden teaches us actually a delight in dependence. And we say we want nothing to do with it. We can be our own, outside of you. Of course, where does that get us? Burnt out, full of anxiety, filled with depression, because we're actually not meant to do it all. We, we're not meant to. But we want to put ourselves in the place of God. 
A life, instead, what we have is a life of constant comparison. A life that demands from others perfection according to our will and our image of what things should be in the world. A life that demands others' obedience to our plan, what life should be like. At the heart of the problem of the world is sin. But at the heart of sin is saying something else should be hallowed. Something else needs to be set, set apart as altogether worthy and weighty and significant. Let's put ourselves there. Of course, we don't just do that, though, and this is why this petition is so important. We do that, why it's so important is, is first it corrects us from putting ourselves in the place of God. But actually the fact is that we put all kinds of other things in the place of God too, right? It's not just ourselves that we're like, yeah, we're going to decide what's right and good and it'll direct our lives. But we put all kinds of other things. Of course, tempted to put our kids there. I mean, if our kids want to do something, let's not go worship God. Let's not go say he's the Holy One. We'll go do whatever they want to do. Maybe the balance on your 401k, maybe how curated your house looks, maybe your weight or the food you eat. I mean, man, we make all kinds of things in the image of God. Calvin says our hearts are idle factories. This thing is hollowed, this thing is hollowed, this thing is hollowed. The problem is that putting any other thing in the place of the hollowed one will kill you. And it'll destroy them. The root of the problem of this world is sin. At the root of sin, though, is this hollowing of anything else other than God. Anything else. We make impersonation after impersonation. Our marriages impersonate God. Our families impersonate God. Our dreams that we get consumed with, they become a thing that we strive after and strive after. And what Jesus tells us is that these things only steal, they only kill, and they only destroy. This is what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in earth, on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What he's saying is take all of these things and put them in, a sort, in sort of in heaven saying, here, they're right next to God. In comparison to God, they are nothing. They can be received as gifts, but they can never take the place of him. And as we take God out, we might be tempted to say, look at this. This is the hollowed thing. He says, whenever you do that, it is moth and rust and decay and death. Jesus is saying the problem of making false gods is that impersonating God always kills. It always does. Always leads to destruction. Um, So we need this prayer so much because we make ourselves God. We're tempted to make other things God. Um, but before we move on, I actually want to want to say uh, point something out that's kind of interesting, and and that's this: that um, this is a request to God, right? It's not. It's actually odd. It's, it's not. 
Let us hallow your name. It's hallowed be your name, which I know is a really weird way, way of phrasing something. We don't oftentimes phrase things in the passive like that. Um, you know, we, we tend to say like, hallow your name. But um, this is, I'll say this, okay. What I read about that is why it was probably in the passive is that in, a, in Jewish society, it would have been wild to actually actively request something with, with association to the name of God. That would have been overstepping kind of. Anyway, but my, the idea here though, and I think this is really important, is that God is, do, God is the one that is doing the hollowing. Um, and this is really important that we sit in this for a second, okay? Um, part of where we go astray and part of how we sin against others and against God and against this world is in our efforts to change it all. Um, we have to bring in the kingdom. You better hollow God's name. I'm going to show you. Are we bringing the kingdom? If, if, if it's all on us to bring God holiness, then we end up being coercive manipulative, building our kingdoms actually after our own image often than the image of God. Our temptation is to be the one that's in charge of making all this happen. And if all the world could just listen to me, it would happen. Which again is actually making yourself the impersonator for God. Martin Luther says this, by this petition, I pick up on one heap, I pile up on one heap, Every kind of false belief and worship, all of hell and all sin and blasphemy. He said, this thing right here is the heart of uh, what is wrong with everything. God alone is the hollowed one. He alone is the holy one. And getting that order wrong is is the root of all of the problem of the world. All of it. Of course, this is why in the book of Isaiah, like we heard in chapter 6, when Isaiah is shown the Lord high and mighty and seated on the throne, and the seraphim with all their wings. Seraphim, by the way, uh, means the burning ones. So whenever you think of seraphim, I know cherubim are like the, the fat little babies. We don't know that they're that way, but that's what they're depicted in art. Seraphim are just the fiery ones. But they, uh, Isaiah hears the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The response that Isaiah has is, woe is me. Woe is me. Because when you see the very holiness of God, how he's altogether outside of us and incomprehensible, beyond our abilities and our our understanding, you have to see how you've tried to put yourself in that place, to put created things in that place, and on and on and on. You've just made impersonator after impersonator after impersonator. And you must fall down and say, woe is me. This is why we need this petition right at the beginning. Now, I have one final question um, for us as we consider this petition. So first I asked, like, what does it mean? And then I just said, why do we need it? What's the big deal? Um, 
And then I want us to actually consider right now, how does God answer it? Okay, how does he answer this petition? Um, and, and I want to suggest to you sort of two temporal answers that God gives us. The first in the, in the, in the future. And again, this is what we heard read to us from not First Thessalonians, but Revelation. In Revelation, John is on the island of Patmos there, and he's given this vision. And of course, Revelation is notoriously difficult to understand, but it's, it's at the very least a glimpse into the worship of heaven and of the things to come. And what we see there in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, verse 8, is we, hear, we see first these beings, these cherubim and seraphim, who are saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then we actually see the chorus just gets bigger, and I'm not going to continue on because it keeps getting bigger, but in verse 11 it at least says this, worthy are you, the Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you create all things and by your will they existed and were created. What we get a picture of is this thing that we are asking, hallowed be your name, will happen. It's going to happen. And there's a question, of course, is are you going to be a part of it? It's part of what we're wrestling with. And of course, if you know the book, the previous chapter, chapter 3 in Revelation actually has all these letters to these churches. And the main thing is, you know, persist until the end. Be a part of this great chorus of people that say, holy, holy, holy. Are you going to be a part of what's to come? That's one temporal answer. But the other temporal answer is the reality of Christ, Jesus, in the flesh. Jesus comes as the very revelation of this holy God, the one who's altogether different and distinct and beyond creation, comes and is contained in a human body. The paradox of paradox is far beyond the, the burning bush that's not consumed, God in the flesh. When we see Jesus come, what we have, at least in the Gospel of John, is him again and again, seven times, saying, I am the I am. Seven in the Bible, by the way, is the perfect number, the number of perfection. So he's saying, in me is your desire for redemption and salvation and the life that you desire most. So this is, these are the I am's of John. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this. I am the bread of life. I mean, how, te- how tempted are we uh, to think that something else is going to satisfy us other than God? Something else is going to fulfill our desires, uh, a new job, whatever have you. If I just have this, then I'll be satisfied. Jesus says, no, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Think about it. What, what things do we say directs our path, gives us understanding to where we're supposed to go, and we can list all kinds of things But Jesus says, I alone bring light into darkness. Third one, John chapter 10. I'm the door of the sheep. I guarantee that many of you long for a place of rest. 
You can just burn out from your life in various ways. A place of peace. A place where you can lay your head down and not worry. Jesus says, I'm, 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 I alone am the door for this kind of life. Uh, for John chapter 11, famously, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, the, the pursuit of idols is this thing is going to give me life. If I can get this job, man, is my life going to be set. Jesus alone is life. Um, Jesus says in John chapter 10 again, I'm the good shepherd. He alone actually can protect you, care for you as you need, protection and care. The sixth one is this in John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, the temptation of an idol is to see in that thing that which can give you proper knowledge of the world and understanding of how things work. Of course, our intellect can be a god. Books can become idols. Jesus alone is the only source of truth, proper knowledge. Finally, seven. I'm the true vine. Jesus alone is the only one who causes us to thrive and to bear fruit, living fruit, life-giving fruit. Um, turn with me to the beginning of the bulletin. Now, there's a meditation quote. I want to read it to you from Hudson Taylor. He says this, The branch of the vine does not worry and toil and rush here to seek for sunshine and there to find rain. No, it rests in union and communion with the vine and at the right time and in the right way is the right fruit found. Let us so abide in the Lord Jesus. The fact is, is that all of our idol making is us running after other places for sunshine and for rain, for thriving. And it's only found in the great I am. He's the only one who can come down and deliver you, redeem you, give you the life you so desire. But when this I am comes, what we also find in the, in the Gospels is that he comes and he deals perfectly with these problems of sin, of self-centeredness, of idol-making, of placing any other thing in the place of God. This is what Jesus comes down and deals with perfectly on the cross and in the resurrection. And when he displays this perfectly in the resurrection. What we know is that he alone has the name above all other names. I mean, the thing that is going to direct our lives, right? Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 28, is that they've been, we've been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that is because Jesus begins those, those verses at the end of Matthew chapter 28, by saying this, all authority has been given to me. I'm the altogether distinct one. I'm over all things. I am the I am. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, therefore God 
has highly exalted him. He showed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. I'm going to end with simply saying this. Don't let the imposters fool you. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.